So uh, our interview today, welcome to the show, is uh, Elizabeth McCauley, who's the uh, founder of Market Edge Partners. Thanks for uh, coming on today and joining us. Yeah, I appreciate that, Mike. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So a lot of people, you know, here we are in uh, 2023, uh, in uh, uh, August, September, a lot of people are talking about AI first now. And I've seen uh, some of the things that you've written about that from an executive perspective. What uh, What's AI first mean for you? Um, AI first for us at Market Edge Partners means that all of the work that we're doing in strategy and go to market is informed by AI. AI is in the loop of humans uh, doing the work. So um, we follow frameworks and methodologies that are known in business um, for strategy and go-to-market work, um, product marketing, product management, um, you know, developing new offerings and services, whole business strategies end-to-end, uh, sales and marketing, uh, content marketing, all of those types of of areas that we're experts in, um, we are now using AI to inform that work. Okay, that uh, you just said like I think my favorite phrase now of all time, which is pretty much what my life is built around, and that's uh, humans in the loop with uh, AI. Um, you know, I, when you're talking with a lot of your mm. uh, executives, oh, go ahead. A little bit different. A little bit different. Um, AI is in the loop with humans. Okay, I I think I might even like that better. Okay, give us a yeah, little bit because, about that. Well, it, it's an important difference because you know these are systems; they're not people. They don't right. have the knowledge that we have. They don't have the nuance of expertise of, you know, the the what people do in business. Now, incredibly smart in the terms of the amount of information and knowledge the AI can fetch. But ultimately, people are responsible for business. People are responsible for work. And that's where the accountability needs to stay for most things. Um, now, there's definitely business processes where we don't want people involved. And that's not the work that we do. Um, but AI is informing our work. That's very different than AI is doing the work and people are all along for the ride. That's why I think it's different. You know, I think Mark Andreessen was the one who said it, that AI is an architecture it's not a feature um and i think that that's uh it's kind of like a little bit about what, what you're saying right we're 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 taking the people the architecture the business models that already exist and and bringing ai into that into those workflows um so i think business models um business models as um how a company makes money um frameworks and methodologies how businesses, how people get to um, designing business, designing product, like those kinds of things. I think of those as, as like distinctly different things. And so they're, they're known frameworks and methodologies for how somebody would um, design sales systems and sales process and go about it, you know, their, their sales, you know, methodologies, very much like marketing or product management, product development. There's known methodologies that, that have worked and are proven in business, and AI can be part of that. Now, what is very different, and what I find particularly fascinating, is that AI isn't new. AI is decades old. Um, large language models are also not new. Um, they, they are you know, more than a decade old. What is new is the business model. And what's interesting about this is, is that usually enterprise technology that's incredibly powerful is reserved for enterprise businesses. Now this changed a bit. We saw a bit of this in cloud computing where um, cloud native startups, remember cloud native companies, right? They could build faster because they were using cloud services. They had platform as a service, they had PaaS and then we had data services and then you like all these so software as a service and the new business model of subscription and now everything is a service. And then you had solution as a service. So I'm gonna take some SaaS and some PaaS and um, some data services and mix it together and call it as a solution as a service. And that's my intellectual property. 
And then also business process as a service. Business process as a service is, you know, the buyer is buying an outcome. It's a risk-based business model by design built on cloud native architecture. And so that whole B-Pass service, which is, you know, still coming into maturity, um, that was a, that's a whole new business model where the buyer doesn't care about the technology, they care about the outcome. And so that's really the domain of the process types companies. So the point of, of that is large language models um, and how they're deployed and accessible to literally everybody, that's new. That's something that we haven't seen before. And not only is that business model of large language models new, generative AI, it's also um, the cost point at which people can access the technology and then, you know, be really unconstrained about what they can do with it. Mm -hmm. So are you, uh, I think you have some uh, fractional growth uh, roles that you perform for people with this. Um, mm -hmm. Can you give us a little bit about that? You know, what are the pain points that are being addressed relative to AI and uh, customer acquisition and things of that nature right now? What are you hearing from uh, executives? Mm -hmm. So fractional services, um, kind of a concept that um, companies, um, you know, early stage or uh, later stage, you know, growth companies, you know, companies moving from series B to C, you know, that they can, uh, you know, acquire the depth of skills and knowledge from uh, executives that are uh, you know, employees of the company independently. So they onboard as, you know, like an employee, they have the accountability and responsibility, you know, of an executive of a company, but only for a fraction of the time. And so this might be, uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's limited, right? The benefit for a startup company is they, you know, get access to executives with, you know, decades of experience and depending on what that specialization is of that executive, whether they're a chief revenue officer, chief financial officer, growth officer, strategy, um, you know, there's the whole range of functions mm -hmm. for executive people is that startups can benefit and, you know, get the best of both worlds and building, you know, expert process and informing systems and how to build teams and essentially, you know, uh, not make as many, um, you know, early company type of mistakes, you know, getting the benefit of that knowledge. Mm -hmm. Do you work mostly with startups or with established uh, companies or both? I've both really. Um, I have a, some, a lot of expertise in business unit startups with, you know, larger companies. Um, my niche skill is finding new markets and new buyers. And mm -hmm. so what that might mean is for, you know, a, a startup company that is, you know, going into an entirely new market that's nascent, undefined, like your company is, you know, doing VR, that's a nascent market. Um, there's other markets too that are industry specific that are nascent. So markets that are not well-defined um, expertise in how do you go into a market who are your buyers? What's the value? How do you carve out your unique place in a new space? Educate the market on what you do in your value proposition and build a brand and then establish product market fit um, so you could have repeatable sales and marketing processes before you go for growth, right? Go to market or grow. Uh, uh, that's the uh, go to market fit, right? product market fit, go to market fit, different, different concepts. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the, that would be in the, the world of, of a startup company. Sometimes companies um, take a look at their portfolio. Let's say this company has done a lot of acquisitions and they're looking at their portfolio of software and they're trying to figure out how do they leverage what's in their portfolio today in a new way to reach a different kind of market. Um, there's some risk with that with companies because um, making that transition has, you know, some trade-offs. Um, companies that might be in a process manufacturing 
space might have a natural thought, I want to go into pharma and life sciences and not really think about, um, you know, as deep as they may need to about what are the compliance implications? What are the skills of the sales team that I need? What's my unique value? Mm -hmm. um, how do I not distract from my current goals of executing in the moment of, of what I'm responsible for and also do this other thing over here? And, and that's a really good fit for something like a chief growth officer that's a fractional. I think of chief growth officers as like mm -hmm. the master gardeners of the business, right? Okay. Right, um, right. The soil condition, the, the, the soil conditions, the weather, the, all the things that you really need to analyze to figure out what do I want to plant and when mm -hmm. um, and make sure that it's not disrupting, you know, the ecosystem of everything else that's going on in, in, in the garden, so to speak. So I, I like this chief growth officer is, is like a master gardener of the business. Okay. I like that. Sounds like uh, there's a playbook for all of this. You know, what's in that playbook? Yeah, so the, the playbook, um, I, I recently published a paper called the Founders AI First Playbook. And this is largely targeted at, you know, people who are going out and launching new businesses, whether that's a, a startup software company or even, even fractionals, um, consultants that are, are new and figuring out who are their markets and buyers, What's their unique value proposition? How do they differentiate? How do they focus in on what they need to be doing? You know, that's that's classic strategy kind of work. And what I think is unique and different is that AI is in the corner of people, mm -hmm. right? Because everybody has access to, um, you know, this intelligence provided we know how to work with the systems, provided we understand that AI is not a QA system. It's a, it's a, it's you, you, you dialogue with the AI like you dialogue with a business partner. Um, I think this is an incredible opportunity um, for people who are solopreneurs and founders and startup companies and, and every other company on the planet, by the way, as well, um, particularly founders, people with few resources um, can really think more deeply about you know, their buyers, their value, who their users are, um, product marketing, and even in developing, um, you know, products and solutions you're bringing to market, um, we're mastering persona development. Once the AI mm -hmm. understands the personas and it becomes, you know, something that I have my persona guide for whether that's content writing or a product or a um, really anything. It could be an employee in a business. It could be my buyer. Um, I can point the AI to my persona guides for whatever that mm -hmm. function is I'm doing. And that can greatly accelerate um, the work in asking the AI questions. It's almost a step beyond um, mm -hmm. how uh, OpenAI's GPT has their um, you could program in your your preference. I forget what it, this this capability is mm -hmm. called, but mm -hmm. you you program in essentially into your GPT four, um, you know, kind of like your persona, but for an individual person. We're doing this for um, multiple personas across multiple lines of business um, to inform the work in uh, strategy, go to market. Um, product development, those kinds of things. So how are executives that you're dealing with now dealing with the speed of change on this? I mean, Ray Kurzweil, you know, always talked about the singularity and we'd be at the singularity when the pace of the change, well, that was actually future shock, was uh, the pace of change is faster than people could keep up with. And the singularity mm -hmm. is when uh, people are unable to keep up with the uh, intelligence um how are people right now mm -hmm. handling the last you know nine months of uh, the pace of change that you're experiencing um i think the pace of change is stunning in short it's people right. who are technologists and business technologists i mean this isn't anything like we've seen before and so 
um, when I think about, well, you know, one, how are people handling it? And two, what do you do about it? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of different, different thoughts that need to come together. Um, You know, the why and then that, the now what? Um, For many companies, AI wasn't even on their roadmap. I mean, this, the large, I mean, completely blindsided. I mean, 2041, that book has been out for five years. Like, you know, we're writing about open AIs, you know, within that book. So people who are, you know, readers and like to kind of read the edges of, you know, what's coming. Um, it, it wasn't a secret, mm-hmm. but what, what I think is what was really difficult or what is difficult is companies have a deep trust of analyst firms, rightfully so, you know, yeah. companies want to know what's coming, you know, how do we plan for it? Um, what does the market look like? Who are the vendors in this space? How long do we have to plan? These are mm-hmm. the kinds of questions, you know, large and small companies, mainly large companies, like really think about that. And this is the domain of their executive teams to be informed of the what's coming, how long do we have, what's our strategic advantage, that kind of thing. Uh, companies have innovation teams who are responsible for these functions within a business. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, they can be, you know, incubation hubs for new technologies. They can be education hubs for the rest of the company and maybe subsidiaries. There's lots of ways that companies handle um, those kinds of things. And what is very different now is the frameworks that have typically evaluated and helped evaluate the timeframe for when technologies reach nascent to usability to maturity, I don't think they work anymore. I'll just say it. Um, okay. I think that there's there's a lot of analyst firms that are scrambling, trying to figure out how do we right. make sense of this? Yeah, almost and an I existential think that crisis. The way you make sense of this. Yeah, I, I think that there's an existential crisis in the analyst community right now um, mm-hmm. because, you know, they have to look through the lens they know usually, right? right. And right. when something's worked for decades, and this isn't just on the analysts, this is for whole businesses, right? That are mm-hmm. just, you know, going through disruption. Let's try to, to, to understand and look through the lens of something we know works. And I always tell people the frameworks will save you. When you get in trouble, like just wait, mm-hmm. the frameworks will save you, right? Sometimes that's not true. Um, sometimes, um, you know, there needs to be kind of a critical eye and a critical line of thought of, well, what's changing and, and, and why? And what I think is changing is that um, the technology, the emerging technology is doing the heavy lifting for emerging technology. It's a bit of a circle. Mm-hmm. You think about that we've got um, hyperscale cloud computing. We have right. Azure, Azure services. We've got data services. We've got analytics services. We've got all of these services that have been baked up for 20 years on the cloud. Okay. Now we're going to combine them with this hyper capability of intelligence and put it together and the the process cycle time for how you can iterate and build mm-hmm. something new is 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 just and, and that anybody can have access to the technology and also cloud mm-hmm. services and at a cost that's low it's lowered the barrier of en- entry for everything and right. so this is why I talk about this is the David and Goliath moment mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it's not that we haven't seen moments in business history where very small companies come out of left field and it's like, well, well wait, we better watch these. We better watch this company closely because they could take mm-hmm. our market share. They could change right. the requirements of the market. They could do things that are fundamentally disruptive to our revenue stream. Right. And so when we say, well, you know, technology is doing the heavy lifting of technology, it's, it's making accessible, um, you know, it's, it's disrupting um, the, the business of other companies and whole markets and whole industries all at the same time. Yeah. I feel like I'm living through the 90s again. You know, 
I had uh, conversations with boarders in the 90s. And uh, I said, you know, you probably should put this catalog online, um, you know, and compete with Amazon. And they, you know, existentially, mistakenly uh, thought it was kind of a fad and that, you know, maybe they really didn't need to do that. Ultimately, a few years later, they outsourced it to uh, Amazon. Um, and now we know where uh, Borders is versus uh, Barnes and Noble and Amazon. I feel like we're having that moment all over again with a completely different generation, but at a hundred times the speed, you know, in the nineties, it was, uh, we should probably think about how we're going to figure out how to put one of those web page things up, um, for existing businesses. Whereas around them, there were people who were innovating things, you know, at a hundred miles an hour, uh, you know, maybe not pets.com, mm -hmm. but Amazon, and uh, obviously, um, as far as, a smaller person, a smaller business coming in, but the larger businesses had a little bit more time to figure out how they were going to evolve themselves into an online world. Um, and a lot of the mm -hmm. same conversations people are having were, well, this is going to change everything. This is going to democratize it. People in, you know, third world countries are going to be able to participate. We're going to do all this. Uh, now I feel like the technology is not only a hundred X more powerful than the network effects of the internet and the web, uh, and what that did to, uh, to business, but also the power of the actual, uh, uh, artificial intelligence itself is it's, it's a hundred X. So now it's like, what's a hundred mm -hmm. times a hundred and the speed is, uh, not, well, we've got maybe five, six years to figure out how we're going to ease our way into this. It's sort of like. It's already happened. It's not. It's not coming on the horizon. We're already there. There's something more as well. There's something additional that is not about technology. Okay. Within the pandemic, um, you know, m many people have been working from home for decades. It just really kind of depends what types of companies and cultures and and whatever. But generally speaking. Um, people were pushed home, people went behind a screen and that became the new normal, became normalized right. because of the pandemic. And what also became normalized is the idea that um, with that, anybody can be anywhere. And while mm -hmm. we've had outsourcing for decades and global work for decades, um, that's not new, what people what has become normalized is that global resources um, uh, uh, I guess the being a digital native to a nomad was also kind of normalized. Right. And on top of that, we've got the maturity of social networks and social learning, um, LinkedIn, huge social platform of learning for professionals and then all these other networks that people can come together and learn in global co cohorts for free with free access to knowledge and education and spin up you know little uh companies who are going to go build something on the side and mm -hmm. do it because they trust each other because they're you know you know they know each other through maybe learning and collaboration in a different kind of way, people can can form these companies and, and learn and can be globalized in a way that is now normalized, um, where really that is it's, additional it's 100 uh, amplification it, effect. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's, it, and I have always worked remotely forever somehow. Um, and very few people maybe would participate a little bit I think to your point during the pandemic, everybody was forced to figure out how to make this work and come up with, this mm -hmm. is how we're going to do it now. And that is a major mm -hmm. difference because it is totally normal and totally, it's almost mm -hmm. a hassle to have to go in to have a meeting. It's like, we could just do this, you know, remotely. This is so much easier. So now everybody on the planet knows how to do it. Every knowledge worker on the planet. Mm -hmm really, really knows how to work out the kinks because you can do it for a couple of time, a couple of days and it's convenient. Maybe it's cool. You can work, you know, remotely because you're uh, on a workcation or something, 
But when you have to go months and months and keep the business running and make it work and solve all those problems, and you can't come back into the office to figure it out, it's almost like we've changed the entire uh, worldview of yes. the planet on how to do it because we had no choice. We had to do it. And that is, uh, That's you know, right. your point is, is, is absolutely spot on about that. That is not, that can't be understated. The combination of, you know, remote mm -hmm. uh, global workforce and uh, ease of access and cost to the cloud and artificial intelligence. And, the, you know, I guess that's where the speed of, every, of the change is coming from is yeah. people who, and, and who, this, were, who were this... locked out before are, are now able to say, no, I, I, this is mm -hmm. how I'm going to do it. And if, uh, you know, XYZ company wants to come along for the ride, that's great. Otherwise, they'll leave them in the dust. That's right. That's right. And there's a, there's a big social shift component um, that goes with this, um, that people are comfortable, fundamentally comfortable working with people they've never met on the other side of the planet and how global payments and global transactions, and let's talk about crypto, right? I have paid people in ETH to do work in Africa that I've never met and work was delivered and it was awesome. And it's like, wow, like we're talking about a shift in knowledge in global social structures and global work. We're talking about global trust of people um, who can help each other. Like one of the things I thought was absolutely fascinating um, with the, early in the war in Ukraine. I'm an incredibly curious person. Gets me in trouble sometimes. Yeah, a little uh, bit now. <laughs> but people, um, there, was a, there was a call from the, the, the Minister of, of Digital uh, Responsibility from U U Ukraine and, and there was a Telegram channel somehow I found on Twitter and what was happening was this whole groups organizing around setting up a digital security um, type of team. And just curiosity, just watching this develop, this Telegram channel was like, well, we need translators and we need this and we need this kind of skill. And, and that it just organizes almost on, a, on its own, on a mission. I think mm -hmm. people have a very different mindset for what global um, collaboration looks like. Right. And so when we talk about, well, what's different? Well, the technology is different, definitely. That's part of it. But there's the social components different. There's the global work that's different. There's, I can be anywhere working with anyone and it literally doesn't matter. All mm -hmm. of that's become normalized and also a desire for people um, to be able to have a bit more control and take their careers into, you know, their their hands, right? I think that this last year, particularly the meltdown of the tech world, people have like, well, wait, I've been loyal to this company for 10, 12 years, whatever that looks like. And all of a sudden I'm separated from people that I worked with and that were kind of my friends and those kinds mm -hmm. of things. People are struggling with that loss. And I think that, you know, if people can start up companies faster with global work, work with cool people, you know, make money and also have their own, you know, control their own destiny in mm -hmm. some way. And that's all fuel for this fire. And that's yeah. why I think the analysts are having a hard time with the question of what's happening, because it's mm -hmm. not just technology. It's all these things happening at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And the social aspect of work is highlighted by that, um, you know, People like to, you know, they like to do business. You know, you always hear the old saw of, you know, they like to do business with people they know, like, and trust. Um, but it's true, um, you know, and when we've disrupted all of our social connections and our friends at work, maybe they don't even really work together, but they have lunch together and they're completely different you mm -hmm. know, areas of it. But there's a lot to it of, of the social aspect of work and business that has, I would say, it didn't evolve recently. It just completely rug we rug pulled ourselves with it and and changed it, it yeah. so much that it's almost like there's two camps of people who are going a headlong into it um, and then a lot of people who are having a lot of cognitive dissonance about it 
and I, there seems to be a lot of people who are, you know, decels, slow pump the brakes because it's sort of, uh, you know, they, they don't want to uh, make that change yet or they don't know how. So, you know, how do we, how do we help those people bridge the gap? Because it's real. It's because so, it's a social problem for them too. You know, mm -hmm. people can talk it about is. AI is going to take over mm -hmm. and all these doomsayers, but really I think a yeah. lot of it has to do with the fact that, you know, we're moving so fast into a completely different way of doing business that yeah. um, people don't particularly like it. It's a, it's a, it's an aesthetic thing for them. They're missing their friends. Mm -hmm. They're missing the process. And it's almost like we, mm -hmm. we have to bridge that gap and bring them along socially and emotionally. Right. Um, all of that is very important to look at on its own because, mm -hmm. um, I do believe that we um, will experience a structural unemployment shift on some level. And there's a period of transition into what is that new economy? What are all the new jobs? What are all the new skills? What are all those things that are going to take time to kind of settle out? Like there's a transition. So if it's just starting, like we're going through this transition, there's an, also another dimension and I'll speak just about the United States because I'm not sure how this factors in with other demographics around the world, but the highest, the fastest growing demographic of workers are people over the age of 65, literally. And so that's, people are going to work into their seventies and also the, 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 the demographic where we have the fewest workers entering the workforce are people between the ages of 16 and 30. And so already we have a, a big imbalance of um, one, the pipeline of workers. We don't have enough workers coming in compared to the people exiting work and retirement. Also, at the same time, many people can't retire. People can't retire because we've got, you know, a healthcare crisis. We don't have support for caregivers and we don't have support for people aging in place at home because healthcare is unaffordable, inaccessible, it's ridiculously expensive, and it can bankrupt a person in six months with a huge medical crisis. So that's also something to really think about is what are all these things going on that impact the demographics of the workforce? And then we think about how Fortune 500 companies typically invest in people and their pipeline of talent they pick and choose. Um, well, here's our top talent, and I'm going to go invest in these 100 people this money into this special program because you're special, and we're going to grow you up to stay here. And it was a mechanism for retention and all of that. I also think that's out the window because um, we can't have a workforce where people are like have imbalanced knowledge, you know. We need to immediately upskill the entire workforce um, because AI will be part of every single line of business, you know, enabling process to help companies do the two things. It's to save money, to make money. You know, there have only been a few companies have been um, um, honest about that they know that certain jobs will be replaced with AI and they're openly talking about it. You know, this is where. I think IBM has done a really good job of, of talking about where they're not going to replace jobs with workers because they've identified that AI can do that and they're going to go focus on, on other kinds of things. So I think this comes down to um, leadership, right? We got to get back to the business of having good old fashioned leadership in talking about, um, you know, how to upskill a workforce, acknowledging that that's everybody are need, will need to be upskilled, everybody with, you know, air quotes, right, knowledge workers, in order to use technology um, in a way that removes friction from their jobs, um, helps them with frustration, um, helps them, um, you know, have a, a, a better outcome for the result that they're looking for. Now we've got to like throttle this with, well, what's the process? What are the best practices, right? Because we already talked about that AI is not a QA system. It, you don't type in, give me my strategy and go to market and push the button, expect an answer back, right? There is a 
baseline of knowledge that um, you know assume that people are working with, and that I have a best practice process for um, my validation steps. That I'm going to do this task. I'm going to have a validation step. I'm going to go and I'm going to. I, I I know as a because I'm human with AI in the loop. I know what the validation steps are. I know how to check my work. I know when something doesn't look right that I'm gonna cross compare with something else. This is critical thinking and problem solving when you're doing work. And that's why I really think that it's important companies understand um, that you know one, this is all work. And two, for all work, we need to have new methods and best practices for the work. Mm-hmm. And new opportunities as well. Uh, you know, there's mm-hmm. for every job that we lose, we're going to create a whole different category uh, of it. You know, uh, that's that that's the history of the world. You know, every or at least the last 400 years, uh, for every technology mm-hmm. that came along that was going to wipe a, uh, wipe all the workers out, it wound up making more uh, value for one uh, and more uh, more jobs. They just were different ones. And I, I think what's different, um, you know, we've seen, you know, when ATMs, you know, mm-hmm. came on the scene and, right. and were like really any like big, like what happens to the tellers? Like now you drive through tollways and there's no tollway workers and those kinds of things. So there's lots of examples where technology has released, released, uh, replaced people. There's mm-hmm. fewer technologies that are, um, you know, uh, there hasn't been an example of a technology that's more like a human and human type of thinking than, you know, generative AI. Definitely acknowledging that this isn't, you know, yeah. but for the first time, general it's intelligence, right? Yeah. It's creativity has never it's been. Like, it's always been a rote task or, you know, something that was just a, you know, that a quote unquote robot could do. But now we've got artistic uh, output. That's a little bit different, you know. Knowledge uh, is mm. knowledge is creative, you know. Now we've got a whole different set setup of population, you know. Yeah. Well, so we have to acknowledge what it is and what it's not. So right. large language models and and generative AI is not a, a artificial general intelligence. So let's right. all well, agree yeah, on not that. Even close. Yeah. I also, I also, uh, you know. I've been thinking about this for months is AI creative. And I think the answer is no. No, it's not. But and I mean, the, it produces the, reason... the creative output um, is I guess what I'm saying, which, you know, it sort of gets us into a whole debate of like, well, what does creativity even mean? You know, what is a human right. doing to produce right. a piece of artwork? And we know, I mean, right. I know what an LLM is doing to produce a, a picture. And it's, you know, mm-hmm. it's really just borrowing from all uh, other creativity that's been out there, which to this point is, you know, human produced. And it's, you know, it's a, it's, it's repurposing it, but it's kind of like Keith Richards, right? It's like, he's all good, all good guitarists steal, all good guitarists riff off of every other one. I don't know what that is, but it's, you know, if the Keith Richards model of creativity holds, mm-hmm. I don't know, then it is, is it creative? It's certainly not human but it's using humans uh, creativity to repurpose it. What does that even? Yeah, I think, I think, I, I think it, it is worth to talk about the definition of creativity and, and Mm -hmm. my belief is, um, you know, creativity is, is it's informed by our emotions, our Mm -hmm. personal history, you know, all of our collective life experience, how we view the world, our psychology, those kinds of things, I think is what makes, you know, humans uniquely creative. Now, mm-hmm. the the generative AI, generative video, all these, you know, awesome technologies, you know, if I can hold something in my mind and I can say, okay, how do I express this? I want to express this in this type of visual. I, I'm not, I, I can't draw. I'm not an artist in that way, but the kind of art that goes on in my head is, is, is pretty stunning and it's amazing <laughs> to be able to, to finally express that because I've got help. 
Mm-hmm. And so that's what I think is 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 very cool about all of this this new um, intelligence that yeah. we can now you know bring augment forward. Augment ourselves. Is yeah. We can augment ourselves and our natural creativity. And I think for people that maybe are not as you know creative and more structured and that kind of thing, I think that AI also can help those people. Um, who are naturally um, very creative become mm-hmm. more creative. So I think of the, the a, these AI systems as a way to support um, mm-hmm. people and support how they express their thoughts. Um, that AI can go and create a new story that no one ever thought about in a new combination is it's really cool and interesting. Is it creative um, based on how I think about creative and how I think about people, um, I think that our human creativity is something very different. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think you touched on the fact that there's no, you know, it's not artificial consciousness. You know, it's it's augmented intelligence right now and augmented creativity. It certainly isn't artificial general intelligence, and it certainly isn't artificial consciousness. I think a lot of people conflate all those kinds of things together when they come up Mm -hmm. with their, you know, what's going to happen. Uh, uh, down the road. Um, but one of the things yeah. that, uh, you know, uh, when uh, one of the guys that was working for me was working on his uh, PhD, he spent a lot of times at the whiteboard just, you know, philosophizing about different things. And the most difficult part for artificial intelligence, especially within, you know, the research community is, you know, how do you account for the fact that there's no emotion, that there's no uh, emotional regulatory system? Um, and, there, you know, that's, a key component to how people learn or why people learn or Mm -hmm. what motivates it. Um, So it's very, it's still very limited, right? It's amazing what it can do, but if we didn't have humans already creating uh, artwork and we didn't have humans already creating music and we didn't have an entire history of humans creating uh, unbelievable Mm -hmm. amounts of written creative fictional works, we wouldn't have anything to, teach the augmented reality system how to uh, mm-hmm. uh, output any of this stuff. So, you know, humans, it's like, it's not really a chicken or the egg problem. We know what's first. It's human and creativity mm-hmm. and human emotion and humanness is first. Um, and the uh, artificial intelligences that we have now are absolutely stunningly, amazingly wonderful pieces and they've output astonishing things. But those outputs are, to me, still based on humans. Um, it's an amplifier, you know. Maybe it's amplified cognition, not uh, artificial. Uh, you know, it's an amplified and augmented uh, tool for us as humans. I think that's what we have to learn now: is how do we harness that uh, and use it, uh, uh, you know, to to make ourselves have a better quality of life. Yeah, and I think that we start to step into ethics and trust, you know, mm-hmm. very quickly. We we start to, you know, get close to what should we do and what should we not do. And yeah. I think that there's a lot of really Especially smart with people. with auto- autonomous um, AI, you know, how do you have trust mm-hmm. with an autonomous AI? Because it doesn't have the same, you know, value system. It doesn't how, do, how You can't have trust without that uh, value connection or the shared belief system of that without emotions how do you trust the autonomy and and also you know just people you could think about you know phishing scams and people taking advantage of all kinds of things like before large language models and you know now i think there's this different type of training for all people um to, to you know keep people safe to um, you know, and this is where I think the, the role of blockchain is going to play a really important part with AI and, and blockchain being the governance layer um, of, of Web3 and, and information. Um, we might start to see uh, new kinds of, of, you know, I guess, credentials, mm-hmm. you know, from a news source or something like that, that, you know, maybe the New York Times has a public blockchain and everything they produce is minted on that blockchain. And that's how you know that the story, the, the images and everything is, you know, from that trusted news, news source. 
you know, I'm making this up a bit, but we don't have anything like that yet. Where it's people totally know what valid, to trust. Though. You know, how do we figure out? You know, uh, we've got multiple camps of people. Uh, openness and decentralization of this, coupled with AI. Uh, I mean, we haven't even touched on that yet. But you know, that's one mechanism that could be coming. But we've barely started to think mm-hmm. about it. We're at the uh, IBM 386 PC. You could use it at home <laughs> to. Uh, to keep track of your recipes uh, stage of, yeah. of what you're talking about mm-hmm. there. But that certainly is a, uh, uh, you know, a good uh, project to work on for the next 30 years. Um, but, it, you know, yeah. that, there's, there isn't an, an, an entirely a lot of profit motive in that. So as a society, we have to figure out how do we, how do we allocate resources? I sound like an economics professor or something like that, but how do we, how do we, motivate ourselves as a society at this point to invest in those kinds of things because we really need that openness if we're going to have democracy we've got to have things that are open uh that we can understand and that are out there and the, you know the blockchain is a great way to do that um to figure out how to how, what's true and and especially in a world with uh, autonomous ais running all over the place you know what's true and who who's responsible. Mm-hmm. I think this is really, now we're getting into the heart of web three mm-hmm. um, because, um, you know, the whole concept of web three is around um, ownership and use of data. It's about provenance of data. It's about um, yeah. trusted information. I wish and, more people understood and, that as it, uh, you know, we weren't talking about, uh, well, uh, images of apes and nfts and uh uh people being uh pseudo day traders on there the value in it is so immense uh for these societal it problems is. and i wish i wish more people it, uh, understood that well and and many people also don't don't understand that um that generative ai is part of the layer three of the creator economy of the metaverse. And so all of these technologies, there's a value chain of technologies, seven layers of of technologies um, from, you know, the human experience layer, you know, through AR, VR, the transactions layers, you know, Mm -hmm. that's all the payments and crypto and all that through the blockchains, right? And so this, this whole space is wildly complicated. Um, And and maybe that's why I love it so much because they all fit together and we've got a lot of people that might be deep experts in holograms and another group is deep experts in um, decentralized finance and someone else really understands zero knowledge proof or, you know, someone's like, okay, I'm the layer one. Um, the, the point of all of this and back to your question of what do we need to do different to invest is we need to stop investing in waste. And yeah. what I mean by that is, you know, we've got whole industries built on waste and inefficiency um, like healthcare, four trillion dollars, mostly waste and inefficiency, that prevents us in, wa- in investing in things that you know could be more valuable to humans and society and people. You know, getting the kinds of services that they need, mm-hmm. um, and and this is probably true of of many other kinds of industries too. Um, industries that are burdened with administrative processes that could be solved with instant settlement with a smart contract, those Mm -hmm. kinds of things, that high degree of automation, you know, we can then take that money and and invest differently in how we, you know, build and transform the cities, right? We've got this commercial real estate crisis and, you know, cities trying to figure out, well, if people are working from home, and people are not going back to the office. We've designed whole cities around people commuting to a downtown area, or people can't afford to live in downtown because it's, you know, not very accessible. How do we rethink the economics of city design? Where are we going to get the money? Well, the money comes to the efficiencies of using emerging technologies to do things in a different way. So, um, you know, it's a it's a complicated conversation because there's so many businesses. I mean, heck, the the data brokerage market is an eight hundred billion dollar industry alone. 
the data brokers that are buying and selling everyone's data, that is a giant, giant market. So trying to just unravel whole established industries and and moving value back to people and ownership and proof and these kinds of things. This is why Web3 is so hard. Mm-hmm. It's also why it's so valuable, you know, uh, if we uh, didn't demonize it and put forth, uh, you know, more of our resources into it, you know, we could utilize that as a, a mechanism uh, for the regulation uh, and of the AI. And I don't mean like, you know, government, you know, regulation. I mean, autonomous AIs have to self-regulate themselves and figure out how, you know, to have a value system with it. You know, just like uh, people do, just like our, our own uh, neurotransmitters uh, regulate what we're interested in doing and what motivates us and whether or not we actually get up and go to work, uh, you know, tokens uh, in, a, in an open system with autonomous AIs could do the same thing for them um, and apply that to your, your point about uh, the inefficiencies of uh, healthcare. Well, we could utilize, mm-hmm. you know, an unlimited number of artificial intelligences with the proper, uh, you know, with autonomy and the proper uh, set of motivations and uh, self-regulatory systems in there uh, to tackle those kinds of big problems, you know. And then we can all just sit back and have a glass of wine because uh, <laughs> the problem, the problem, you know, is solved. Uh, I think, you know, that's the that's the my utopian ver- uh, outcome version of it. Um, but it's going to be a lot of fun for the next, uh, you know, however long we're still on this planet watching that uh, unfold. Hopefully people like you uh, can, can be out there and, and push for uh, the, the great use of that for the betterment of uh, society. Yeah, I don't think there's an easy button, Mike. I think there's a lot of hard work out of society. Oh, of and I do think it is about society um, deciding what that future looks like for, for people. And mm-hmm. it's not just young people and, and people still in the workforce. It's everybody um, needs to, to figure out how to participate, how to step in. Um, I think it's incumbent for people to bring others along in their learning journey and, and try to not make a lot of the same mistakes that we made as people transition to the internet. We've got this giant digital divide. We can't let that happen either um, mm-hmm. and have, you know, um, you know, kind of further inequality of access to knowledge and information. So I'm, I'm always very hopeful for the future. I'm also very practical about how I think about it. And, you know, this is going to be really hard. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for coming on the show. This has been a great uh, whirlwind tour of, of your mind. Uh, I think we should probably, we might have to <laughs> wind up with a part two with this. But I appreciate uh, you coming by today and uh, sharing your thoughts with us. Thank you so much, Mike. It's been great to, to be on the show. Okay.